A reading from the first letter of Peter, beginning with the second chapter, the 11th verse. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Last Sunday, our sermon on Isaiah 43 and Luke 24 talked about God's calling first to Israel and now to us who are in Christ to live as witnesses to his goodness. And in case it wasn't clear, God in Isaiah 43 and the sermon, in the sermon I was speaking of one's witness as something that is always happening as the way we go about our lives, as opposed to thinking of witness in the more narrow sense of when someone's intentionally sharing their faith. But I also suggested last week that God calls us to this lifelong vocation of living as witnesses to his goodness. He calls us, despite our continuing struggles with spiritual deafness and blindness, he does this only secondarily to benefit others. Primarily, he calls us for our own good, 
And this is because taking seriously that we're living witnesses is one way God continues to prod us and build in us the desire to do the hard work required to cooperate with Him to, to leave more of our sinful habits and attitudes behind. Well, the reason I'm reviewing all of this is because we see this theme continuing today in our reading from the second chapter of Peter's first letter. This letter is addressed to churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, or what is modern-day Turkey. And it was surely appointed for today because of Peter's use of the sheep-shepherd metaphor in verse 25. But if we look at the first paragraph of the passage in verse 11, Peter is encouraging the believers to abstain from the sinful impulses that will only do them harm. But then in verse 12, he links this abstention, abstaining from sin, he links it directly with their witness, telling them, quote, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles here meaning unbelievers. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That is the day of judgment. And then... In the second and third paragraphs of our passage, Peter then proceeds to specifically address how first century Christians should engage two challenging realities in their day without sin, without engaging them in sin. That is, the first reality is the civil authority of the Roman Empire that was over them. And the second reality is the institution of slavery that was entrenched in that first century Roman society. Now, before we dive into this, I want to explain that when we engage passages like this, it is critical that we be careful not to take the particular practical applications Peter is prescribing for believers in that ancient historical context and simply transmit those practical applications onto our context today. Doing this is one of the crucial mistakes of, frankly, the fundamentalist approach to the Bible which has led to much harm. Instead, if we desire to distill God's truth from this passage for our lives, we must seek to discern what timeless theological principles underlie the practical applications Peter's prescribing, and then consider how those principles can best be applied or lived out in our present context, which is in some ways different from first century Israel. And because of this, because elements of our society may differ in some significant ways from first century Israel, this may lead us to conclude we should apply the principles underlying what Peter writes in some somewhat different ways than Peter specifically instructs believers here in the text. Or we may conclude that our the practical applications here in 2020 are very much the same. So let's find out. With all this in mind, let's turn to the second paragraph where Peter addresses how believers should conduct themselves in relation to the Roman Empire. We need to understand that Peter writes this letter during a time when Christianity is, of course, a minority religion in the Roman Empire. And the Romans were deeply suspicious of Christianity. Thus, Peter writes in verse 12 about Christians being spoken of as evildoers. And in verse 15 about quote, foolish people slandering Christians to the Roman leaders. However, such accusations 
likely weren't entirely baseless, since the Roman Empire's expectation was unquestioned obedience and allegiance. And yet Christians in those days refused to pledge allegiance to the empire or the emperor because their allegiance was to Christ. Therefore, Christians seeking to be faithful to Christ were always going to fall short in some ways of the loyalty demanded by the Roman Empire. So it's in response to this particular historical situation where Christians are living, frankly, under an authoritarian pagan rule and were vulnerable to persecution. It's in that context that Peter exhorts believers in verse 13 to, quote, be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to the civil authorities, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors who rule on his behalf. Verse 14 makes clear that Peter views the civil authorities as a tool of God used to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. But we must be clear that Peter's command to be subject to them, to be subject to these civil authorities, does not mean unquestioned obedience. No, Peter says to be subject, quote, on the Lord's behalf which has to mean Christians should obey these civil authorities insofar as what they demand is not in conflict with the Lord's commands. And Peter's use of the word honor at the end of this paragraph supports this, right? Twice in verse 17, he uses the word honor, telling believers to, quote, honor everyone, and then later to honor the emperor. Well, this may remind many of us of the fifth commandment, right? Where famously we're commanded to you know, honor your father and mother, which is, but we should clarify that this is not demanding that one be unquestioningly obedient to one's parents, but rather that one should be obedient to the extent that it does not conflict with the Lord's commands. That's what honor means. In fact, to sort of blindly obey anyone in authority, whether it be parents or civil authorities or religious leaders, to blindly obey them in any manner inconsistent with the law of love is actually to dishonor them, whether they see it that way or not. But Peter also wants these believers to recognize the opportunity they have to be a witness on the Lord's behalf of God's goodness by behaving as model citizens in every way that they can without violating that law. So when Peter exhorts them in verse 16, quote, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, we need to understand that the average Roman citizen may have exercised the freedoms that the empire afforded them in some ways that were you know, legal and allowed, but still not to anyone's benefit. Right? That may have been permissible under law, but not necessarily for the common good. So Christians in this context had an opportunity to demonstrate that even though their allegiance is not to Caesar, it's to Jesus, that this could actually lead them to contribute more to the common good than most Roman citizens would. Again, a witness to God's goodness. Obviously, Peter recognizes there could be circumstances where believers would have to disobey the civil authorities pushed which, of course, could lead to their persecution. 
So far from expecting believers to avoid all persecution from the Romans, what Peter instead wants them to avoid is provoking needless persecution and to maintain their witness to God's goodness by using their allegiance to Christ not to antagonize the Romans needlessly, but for seeking to be a blessing to to the Romans and to the place where they live. So Peter's priorities in this middle paragraph seem to be Christians preserving themselves from needless harm and Christians maintaining their witness through bearing the fruits of the Spirit in their civil lives. And these same principles are what seem to underlie his instructions to Christian slaves in the next paragraph, where again Peter is emphasizing submission. He writes in 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, the word servant in the Greek is the word doulos, right? which can also be translated as slaves. There's only one word. you know, Both servant and slave are kind of under that umbrella. But I should say that when I preached on a similar teaching about slavery in our series on Colossians this past summer, I explained that slavery in the Roman Empire is different or was different from the slavery we're most familiar with in America's history. First, Roman slavery was not racially based. And second, those who would have potentially actually read this letter were probably of the household servant variety who were frankly better off in those days and had more mobility than lower-class freedmen. However, it's still clear from verse 18 that, that there were instances of these slaves or servants being treated unjustly by their masters. And yet Peter is instructing them to submit, explaining in verse 19, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, once again, we must take care to understand the circumstances Peter is writing to in order to determine what timeless theological principles undergird his instructions. Throughout history, there have been plenty who have not done this and have wrongly taken Peter's instructions in the text to be an endorsement of slavery, as I'm sure you can imagine. But Peter is not endorsing slavery in the least. To the contrary, he is correctly judging the level to which slavery was entrenched in Roman society and the the, uh, Christians' complete powerlessness in that system as a minority religion to do anything about it. As a minority religion under under authoritarian rule, they had no power. They had no voice. Therefore, as in the previous paragraph, Peter insists that the best way for Christian slaves to conduct themselves in this context, even in response to unjust treatment, is to focus on what they can control, what they do have authority over, which is pers- which, excuse me, preserving themselves and preserving their witness by not returning evil with evil. He writes in verse 20, For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Peter appeals 
to how Christ himself conducted himself in a situation where he was similarly powerless. The only difference being that Christ had chosen to be powerless while these slaves had not. But Peter writes in 22 that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He's riffing on Isaiah 53, but he says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Like Jesus, Peter suggests these slaves should look to the Lord, their shepherd, to be their protector and avenger. In other words, he's instructing them to practice forgiveness against the one who treats them, the master who treats them unjustly, as opposed to retaliation. And Peter suggests that the will and the strength to conduct themselves in this extraordinary way will come only from Jesus himself, who according to verse 24, quote, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So like the previous paragraph on civil authority, Peter's aim seems to be Christians preserving themselves from needless harm while maintaining their witness. But it's even clearer in this section on slavery that a factor in Peter's particular instruction is the church's lack of standing or influence in regard to the institutions of either uh, Roman, the Roman Empire or slavery. Peter understood that the church's witness at that time and in that context was from a position of complete powerlessness. And that informed how he instructed the church to conduct us. Therefore, in order for us to come to any sound conclusions about how Peter's teaching might apply to us or be applied by us in the circumstances of our own day, we need to consider how our present context is both similar to and different from that of Peter's audience in the first century church. So let's do that for a minute or two. One similarity between us and the Christians Peter's writing to is that we live in the most powerful empire the world has ever known in the United States. Just as the Christians Peter's writing to did at that time live in the most powerful empire the world had known to that date, the Roman Empire. But you'll note the way Peter in verse 11 suggests that, that being followers of Jesus means that, that they are to live as sojourners and exiles in the Roman Empire. That is, recognizing their citizenship, their true citizenship, is in heaven and their allegiance is to Jesus. And similarly, we are called to understand ourselves as sojourners and exiles in Western society, whose ultimate allegiance is not to any values or leaders or parties of our nation, but to Christ. Therefore, we are to be similarly subject to the civil authorities, but as Peter said, for the Lord's sake, that is, to the extent that it does not violate the command of love. This is why, for example, the bishop has told us clergy that we are not to reopen our churches during this shutdown until the state government permits it. But we're seeing more and more news reports of protests. Let me say, if a Christian does this, does want to protest, we'll fine, but... 
It's just it should be motivated by the common good, by love of neighbor, not because of some selfish reasons such as being bored and wishing they could go to the beach. So that similarity between our context and that of the first century Christians leads to a somewhat similar application. However, one key difference between the United States and the ancient Roman Empire is that we have rights that Christians in the first century Rome simply did not have. The U.S. Constitution includes the Bill of Rights, which affords us many freedoms, including the freedom of speech and the assurance that all citizens have the right to vote. So this means Christians have at least some level of voice, influence, and protection that was not enjoyed by Christians in first century Rome. In fact, the situation of Christians in first century Rome probably bore much more resemblance in the present day to the experience of Christians in China today. Authoritarian. However, I should note that even though Christians do have voice influence and and some protection, this is perhaps on the decline. Christians' power is diminishing right now. Although we mustn't mistake power for witness. Just because we may lose power doesn't mean we lose witness, the ability to make an impact for the kingdom. But given that we have the freedoms that we do, we need to remain mindful of Peter's caution in verse 16. That we do not use our freedom as an excuse or rationalization for sin. In other words, there are ways Americans are free to exercise their rights, but that in the eyes of the Lord are sinful. For example, I might choose to exercise my right to free speech, but I might choose to do so in a toxic manner that harms myself or others. For example, I might speak from a place of fear or hatred or even more deeply, from unhealed trauma. Or I might speak the truth, but not speak it in love. Well, indulging my sin in this way, even though it's legal, indulging my sin in this way is going to be spiritually damaging, first of all, to me. right? Because I have to disconnect from Jesus to act this way. I have to turn my back on him to behave in that manner. But it's also going to mar my witness, my ongoing and daily living witness as a representative of Christ, anybody who witnesses. So it would be much better for both me and my witness to in that situation when I have the impulse to to speak in that way, to sacrifice that right to free speech in that situation. To abstain from exercising my right to free speech in that. As the end of verse 16 says, we are to live as servants, or you may even translate it as as slaves to God. So you see, somewhat similar to Christians in that day, even though we have more rights than them, we in our own context and with the, the rights we do have, we still have an opportunity to demonstrate how much more gracious and loving our relationship to Jesus has made us than the average American citizen out there who might exercise their rights to great harm, division. 
But then a final difference between our context and the first century Christians Peter's writing to here is, of course, that in the United States, the particular injustice of institutional slavery has been outlawed. Now, if you got the memo. So Peter's instructions may not be relevant to us in that specific way, right? We're not in slavery in the institutional way. However, injustice itself still remains rampant. We will inevitably find ourselves subjected to injustice or confronted with injustice in a variety of ways throughout our lives. Right? I'm not saying anything you don't know. So it is in these instances that Peter's principle of discerning what level of authority the Christian has is important. As we said, Peter discerned that Christians in his day had exactly zero power and influence to overturn, in that case, the institution of slavery. And so no good could come from them pursuing such an outcome. This was, of course, in contrast to the amount of power and influence Christians had in the 19th century Western society, right? when they, Christians led the, the, the pursuit of abolishing slavery. However, despite enjoying relatively more rights than first century Christians, there is still a whole lot in our lives that you and I can't do a single darn thing about or can have very little impact. Therefore, it still remains extremely important for us to ask God for wisdom to discern what we can control and what we, you know, what we can control and change and what we can't. What we can't do anything about. And of course, it's a spectrum. There's gradations between. But the reality is that when we exert all sorts of energy, getting worked up and, and working other people up and worrying about things that we can't actually control, or if we get worked, if we have, if we get worked up to a level that's just you know, dis, disproportionate to our level of influence, that is actually spiritually harmful to us and to our witness because it steals our peace. Is what it ends up. Doing. But on the other hand, when there is injustice that we witness, where our voice or actions could make a difference but we fail to exercise that influence, well then by not acting, we will be ignoring the command to love God and our neighbor. So you can see, seeking wisdom and discernment from God on these matters of how much authority we have over any given issue or situation, how much influence we truly have, is crucial. Pursuing wisdom and discernment about that is truly like pursuing a pearl of great price because it's going to make the difference of whether we're operating in the kingdom or not. So as Peter summarizes in verse 17, we are called to honor everyone. Be mindful of that in our engagement when it comes to civil authority, when it comes to injustice. But if I were to distill down the, the, the timeless theological principles from this passage, in case they've not been clear in, in what I've said thus far, I would summarize that, that we're called to maintain a witness of love by honoring everyone as bearing the image of God 
And this includes submitting in the Lord to authorities above us and using any authority that we have, that we discern that we have, using that authority for good, while this excludes adding to harm by indulging sin. Get all that? Maintain a witness of love, honor everyone, submit in the Lord to authorities, use any authority we do have only for good and not for sin. But how? I mean, how do we do this? When Peter urges believers in verse 11 to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against them, and in verse 12 to keep their conduct among Gentiles honorable, the the implication of him telling them that is that it's something that can be done. He wouldn't tell them to do it if it was impossible. Of course, it is impossible except apart from God. But he's telling them this because believers actually can begin to live this way with God's help. So how can this begin to become more of a reality in our lives? Well, it's certainly easier said than done. But I would suggest that whenever we are confronted, say, injustice, or with external circumstances in our society or country that are different from what we would prefer, I'm sure that's not infrequent, To explain succinctly what we should do, I would say we we should begin learning to go inward before we act out. To look inside what's going on with God's help before we respond externally. So by, by going inward, I mean that we should first turn to Jesus in our disturbance, whatever it is. And ask him for wisdom and insight as to where our disturbance is coming from. And we may find that our disturbance is coming from him. From the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, causing us to react against something that is wrong. That is inconsistent with the law. Or we may realize that our disturbance is coming from our flesh. From, from a sinful indulgence of fear or anger or shame. Now we may try to go inward and still be confused about what our disturbance is all about. So that's when speaking to, to a wise, you know, seeking out the wise counsel of other trusted believers can be so valuable. Right? Some, get an outsider's perspective. It's not all wrapped up in it. Are you willing to let somebody speak into your life in that way? But however we get there, once we understand what our disturbance is about, we should then ask the Lord what we can do about it. And again, if it's our flesh, this is something that we can, you know, what, we, what can we do about it? We can confess it, right? We can bring it into the light with another believer. But if instead this is a holy frustration that we've been given in the face of injustice or something that's awry, we should ask God to help us understand the extent that we can actually do anything about it. To give us wisdom about what we can control and what we have no control of. And to the extent that we discern that we have power and influence that can affect change, we can ask God for the courage to act. But to the extent that we, we discern that we are powerless over this thing that we're unhappy about, 
the Lord then invites us to grieve with him. If it's, if it's a holy frustration that he's grieving about, he invites us to grieve with him and to ask him for the gift of acceptance of the world being the way it is and all its brokenness. In the final two verses that we read from Peter today, we can infer that time and time again we must return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. For he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and be healed.